I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, can I help you find something? Librarians specialize in helping you find what you were looking for and sometimes what you didn't know you were looking for. Thank you for joining me as I talk to my guests about all things library, including the books inside them. I'm Julie Chavez, and this is Ask a Librarian. Addison Armstrong is an elementary school teacher and the historical fiction author of The Light of Luna Park and The War Librarian. She graduated from Vanderbilt University in 2020 with degrees in elementary education and language and literacy studies, and she received her master's degree from Vanderbilt in reading education in 2021. She lives with her husband in New York, New York, where she teaches ESL. Here is my conversation with Addison. Hi, Addison. Thanks so much for being with me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Oh, I'm thrilled. I really enjoyed your book, so I can't wait to start talking about that. But we're going to start with a very important few questions to get to know each other since you and I have never met. Okay. And I like to do things differently every time. I tell myself I'm a master of like, okay, I'm going to do it every time. And then this lightning round has sort of come and gone throughout this season. So I want to keep (laughs) everybody guessing. (laughs) It's more fun that way. Yeah. So the first question, and this relates a little bit to the book, we'll get to that in a minute, but if you could be in any branch of the military, which branch would you be in? Ooh, ooh, <laughs> I guess the Navy because of the book, um, okay. and my grandpa was in the Navy. Oh, was he? Mm-hmm. Okay, great. So you have some years. history there. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. I'm mm-hmm. really glad to hear that. I was laughing because I was thinking about that question to myself, and I think I'd be worthless, like equally worthless. Oh, absolutely. In any I branch. would not want to be in any branch. They would not want me to be in any branch, <laughs> but if I absolutely had to pick, <laughs> it would be Navy. Okay, good to know. Check. We'll put you on a on a side list for them. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, perfect. And then another question: What are you reading right now? I am going blank as I always do when someone asks if what I'm reading. It's like I've never heard of books or never read a book in my entire life. <laughs> we can loop back I, around. No, I just started Midnight on the Marn by Sarah Adlaka. It came out the same day as mine did, actually. Um, oh, wow. So it's pretty new. And I just started, but she's great. It's great so far. Good. When do you like to read? Do you find time? How do you find time for it? That's a good question. It's random. When I have a book on my phone, I'll, you know, read in line on the sub on the subway is big. Um, okay. Now that we're in New York, I have an hour and a half commute or an hour, hour, 15 minute commute um, on wow. the subway. But it's really nice, honestly, because it's just built in time to read or write. And then at night also. And you can write on the subway? Yeah, I tell myself I can. Oh, okay, perfect. Well, hey, I'm here for that. That sounds perfect. I'm amazed. I can't read or, I mean, I'm a major motion sick girl and it only Mm. got worse after kids. So now I'm pretty much worthless, which is also 
a testament to why I don't think the military is going to want me. So there's that <laughs> part. But I think whenever people tell me they read or write or do things in cars, I think subways are maybe a little easier. I was going to say, cars are yeah. worse than, yeah, the subway's not so bad. Okay. Well, maybe I'll try it next time I'm in New York. <laughs> Perfect. And just so everyone knows, what is your job now? What are you commuting to? I am an ESL teacher, elementary school. So last year I was in Nashville. I taught third grade and then we just relocated to Manhattan, but my school's in Brooklyn. Got it. And do you like, how do you find ESL compared to classroom teaching? My kids last year were all English learners. Oh, okay. So you Almost were- Almost every single one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nashville's got a huge refugee population. People don't realize. Um, I had kids that spoke Burmese, Chu, Spanish, Swahili, Karin, a bunch of different languages. <laughs> So it's different in the format, you know, it's pull out instead of having a whole classroom and, you know, but the kids are, the kids are kids. (laughs) Yeah. The kids are kids. It's so true. I worked in ESL very early when Wanda and I were married years, probably almost 20 years ago and, Mm -hmm. but worked with newcomers in Portland and they had a very large Russian and Ukrainian population there. So that's what Brooklyn has. It's So it's very, very Ukrainian right now. Very Russian. I'm always fascinated by that. And I think ESL is such a unique, unique piece of education right now. And so key, but misunderstood, I think sometimes for some Mm -hmm. people too, they're not really sure what that looks like. What's your favorite part of working with emerging learners? I didn't prep you for any of these. No, all the things, (laughs) all the things they're good at, you know, people, I think a lot of the classroom teachers are just frustrated because they can't write their essays in English. They can't communicate. They can't answer their questions. They don't know what's going on. Yeah. But there's so many things that, I mean, these kids coming from Ukraine, they already speak Ukrainian, Russian, they speak, you know, Tajik, they speak like all these different languages. Whereas I was monolingual at that age, you know, or they, you know, take their parents to doctor's appointments and translate for them or babysit their siblings after school. You know, I love, finding out those things that show how competent and intelligent they are when it's not necessarily evident to everyone right away. I really appreciate that. And that's a really good way to think of it so holistically too. Cause I think mm-hmm. right now we get so many sound bites of right. what education looks like and what certain programs look like. And it's just rarely part of the full story, either on the teacher's side or on the student's well, side. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, well, I'm glad you're doing that work and it sounds like you are perfectly suited for it. (laughs) So the real question is, what do you want to be when you grow up? Is it what you're doing right now or do you have other dreams? I am lucky. I've been saying since I was in pre-K probably that I wanted to be a teacher, an author, and a mom. So not quite a mom, but I am a teacher. I'm an author. I didn't change my mind, surprisingly. That is incredible. I know. I love that you knew at such an early age. Well, I was reading a little bit of your bio, and I know you've talked about this before, but so forgive me, but your stories about ants getting revenge on their exterminators, which I'm sure, I don't know if you regret really sharing that fact, but that struck <laughs> fear. <laughs> that struck fear into my heart because I absolutely wage war on ants at the library. I am ruthless. Like, See, I, I feel can't. like when you're in a school, you're in a library, it's different. That's true. I don't know. When I was a kid, I didn't, there were sugar ants. It was South Florida. I was like, they're not hurting us. They're not biting us. They're not doing anything wrong. And of course our sweet exterminator, we had the same guy for years and he would come and ask me how I was doing and how school was. And I would just like stare at him in this (laughs) silly silence. He was a murderer. Um, 
house. <laughs> That's where the book book story came from. The ant bakes a magical pie that somehow turns the humans into ants, so they see what it's what it's like to. Wow. Exterminated, I guess. It's, it's very dark. <laughs> Dark. I'm gonna put them in here, uh, cue genocide, and we're good to go. Done. Yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. I I actually really appreciate that, though. You had an eye for justice early on. It sounds like <laughs> that's what I liked to think. <laughs> yes, yes, that's the way we paint it now, as opposed to wow, she had some stuff going on up in there. Right. <laughs> we're a little concerned. We're gonna take her and talk to the doctor. <laughs> Well, I really liked that story. So that is so cute. And I really like the idea, especially because I'm always talking to students about this, you know, you write, write from what you know, but also this Mm -hmm. idea of asking, what if, right? What if you were an ant, you wouldn't want to be exterminated. So Mm -hmm. I thought that was really hysterical. Okay, so you already (laughs) are what you want to be when you grow up, which is fantastic. And that is perfect, because now we can talk about how you got into writing. So where did where did the beginnings happen? So it sounds like you were writing all through your childhood. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. And then how did you start deciding to write a book? And I have I have follow-up questions, of course, but we'll start there. Yeah. I think my mom and my sister and I, we all like to write. We were kind yeah. of just joking around. We're like, let's all write a book this summer. And we assigned everyone a genre. My sister was still in high school. So we're like, okay, Ryan, you're going to write YA. Mom, you're going to write a cozy mystery. And I'm going to write historical fiction. You know, we all kind of okay. picked our favorite. And then I actually did it. <laughs> I went off to school and I did it. And <laughs> it was... Were you uh, in college at the time? Yes. Okay. Yes. I think I was a sophomore at that point. Not 100% sure. <laughs> it all blurs together. Of course. But I surprised myself by actually finishing it. You know, I never finished a book-like manuscript before. I'd always been writing, but it was either short stories that were about crazy things such as ants, or it was right. about... Or it was, you know, the beginning of a novel that never got past chapter five. Um, oh, so I, yeah, I don't think you're alone in that. It's really, yeah. right? So I surprised myself by finishing it. I was like, you know, I've always wanted to write. Why not? You know, there's no pressure. I'm in school. I'm, I was studying education. I knew I would, you know, be a teacher when I graduated, but I thought I might as well try. Um, so I started sending it to agents and I got a couple of, you know, full requests, but nothing you know, long-term, no, okay. no one actually wanted to represent the book. Got it. And as I was doing all of that, I came across the Coney Island incubators, just an article about it online, you know, that this man had a ward of incubators. People would come in on Coney Island, pay to see these like freak show babies in their little egg boxes. <laughs> yeah. And it saved thousands of lives. And I was just so shocked by how bizarre it was. It was just all I could think about. I called my mom. I called my then boyfriend, now husband. And I was like, guys, can you believe? And they were like, oh, yeah, that's interesting. I'm like, no, 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 no. (laughs) Nope. You understand how interesting this is. Correct. I truly just couldn't stop thinking about it. And as I read more, I found out that Dr. Cooney, who ran these words, he was not a real doctor. He was lying. He was making it up. Wow. So then... You know, it was already interesting to me because it was just so bizarre, like the juxtaposition of a freak show in a hospital. But then it became this sort of thorny ethical question of, well, you know, was he doing the right thing or not? He was lying. He was technically a con man, but he was doing it for the baby's welfare. And it did save, they estimate, upwards of 6,000 babies. Wow. That hospitals would not have saved at the time. They didn't have the equipment and they didn't really have the desire. Right. 
pregnant. They thought these babies were weak. They weren't worth saving, all this horrible stuff. So anyway, I was just so fascinated by that. I thought, what if there's a nurse who does what Dr. Cooney did, you know, lies, does something that's wrong to save a baby. Yes. And I started writing that while I was querying that first manuscript. And just about when I'd run out of agents, like I emailed every agent in the universe, I was done with what became the light of Luna Park. So it was pretty easy to push aside that other manuscript, start submitting the light of Luna Park. And I two offers pretty quickly signed with Melissa Danesco when I was a senior, the fall of my senior year. And then we sold it to Putnam that spring or that winter. Wow. <laughs> that is such a great story because it's such a testament to how things happen with writing. And you are not the first person I've talked to that has that sort of experience where mm-hmm. people talk about their unsold manuscript right. in the drawer. And yeah. the, but the idea that that also, it sounds like freed up part of your mind from the pressure so that you mm-hmm. could write the light of Luna Park. Is that how it yes, felt for exactly. you? And that's the advice I give people. Because then writing The War Librarian, it was a two-book contract when we signed The Light of Luna Park. So I had to write The War Librarian. And all of a sudden, it was so stressful. Yeah. What was (laughs) that like? Oh, sorry. Yeah. Tell the advice. But I always tell people when they ask about how do you deal with the rejection and the pressure and the deadlines is to have something else, you know, going on at the same time that's not under deadline, that's not under contract. And maybe eventually it will be. I mean, it doesn't mean you can't submit it. Sure. But it's not the one that's like currently, you know, something on the back back burner. Yes. So for me, while I was submitting that first manuscript, The Light of Luna Park, there was no pressure because I already had a manuscript. And then it kind of switched. By the time I finished The Light of Luna Park, I didn't care anymore that that other manuscript was not getting picked up because I had a shiny new manuscript to to send off. And that's that's been helpful, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. I remember someone telling me that early on, you know, make sure that when you're publishing the book that you're working on your next project. And I was like, well, that sounds terrible. I mean, this idea that. Right. It sounds horrible, but it, it does kind of frees up your. Yeah, it does. And I think what I never knew before is just the way that the wheels of publishing grind so slowly. So that slowly. Really, there are a lot of intervening months where you're not doing much. You're so. not doing anything. Yeah. yeah. You might get some copy edits and then three months pass. Yeah, totally. Yeah. For those of us that love waiting, busy hands are happy hands. So we just (laughs) got to get going on something else. Okay. So talk about the experience then for writing under deadline for War Librarian. How did, how was that different for you? It felt less like a hobby and more like work, which I mean, it was, but you know, it was tangible, that difference. Yes. I actually, it was 2020. So I had just been sent home from school for COVID. Right. The rest of the semester was online And that didn't entail much for me because I had been student teaching. So I didn't really have any classes to go to online. Right. So I had lots of free time to write. I mean, all I had was free time. It should have been a blessing. Kind of felt like a curse because it's so easy to procrastinate when you're, oh, I have all day. I have tomorrow. I have the next day. I have forever. Whereas for the light of Luna Park, I was so busy. I had classes. I had practicum. I had, you know, work, all these things going on that if I had 10 minutes to write, I was so excited. Like, yes, I finally get to put down this idea. Whereas for the war library, and I was like, oh, you know, I got (laughs) to sit down and do it. Yes. Uh, And I think part of it, you know, part of it was that I was just sitting at home. But part of it was that deadline. I was, it's harder to put words to paper when you know someone's going to read them, possibly before they're ready to be read. (laughs) Yes. 
that makes sense because you weren't necessarily so because in that case were you submitting pages through the process you didn't or did you submit no, it all at once still? Not so I submitted it all at once but they did need an outline first and you know all got that. it okay yeah that is a different process I never even thought about right. that writing to that yeah and I I've always, never done an outline before for like Lila Luna Park I didn't do an outline so I was like what what am I, how am I supposed to know what's going to happen? I haven't read it yet. I'm sorry. You must be putting this out of order, sir. <laughs> so I'm not going to do that. Well, let's shift to talking about the War Librarian. I really enjoyed it. I Thank you. liked the balance of the stories. I really was excited to see what would happen. It definitely kept moving. And I felt like you chose two characters in really interesting moments in history. So mm-hmm. how did how did you come up with that idea? How did that one land for you? And maybe give just a brief like what it's about because I'm terrible at saying what things are about. It's, it's not so my strong high. suit. Awful. Most people stare at me like, what's your book about? That doesn't sound good at all. And I hand it to them and they read the back and they're like, oh, that sounds great. <laughs> Better. It's, yep. It's dual timeline. The first timeline, 1918, is Emmeline. She lives in D.C., works at the Dead Letter Office, loves books, is much more comfortable with books than humans, and ends up, after reading a letter she was not supposed to read at work, uh, ends up in France as a hospital librarian serving soldiers who've been wounded in the trenches of World War I. And then, you know, 60-ish years later, Kathleen Carr is inspired by her grandmother, Nellie, who was a motor corps driver in World War I. And she is part of the first co-ed class at the Naval Academy. So that's 1976, which is when all the service academies were forced to allow women into the North. They did not necessarily want to, but they were required. So where that one came from, (laughs) going back to the contract, it was sort of by accident. Okay. I had, you know, a list of all these interesting historical time periods and things that eventually one day I might go back and look at while, you know, things I came across while researching for the Light of Luna Park or came across in books, shows, whatever. And when I talked to Tara, my, you know, soon to be editor for the first time, I didn't have like any of that in front of me. I was like I said, I was student teaching. So during the day I was in the classroom. So the time we set up to talk, and this is, again, before she bought Luna Park, so I was terrified, was while the kids were at specialists. They were at PE. Right. And it happened to be a day that my mentor teacher was out sick, so it was just me. And so the room, of course, was a mess. You know, like stuff, you know, scissors, papers on the floor, everything. (laughs) So I'm, like, sweeping with one hand. I've got Tara on the phone on the other hand. Like, this is, you know, the biggest call of my life, and I'm just sweeping up glitter from the floor. Of course. And you're never going to sweep up glitter. Right. You'll never succeed. And she says, what other ideas do you have for other historical fiction novels? I was like, uh. And I didn't have any, you know, full-fledged ideas yet, but I just threw out a couple of historical things that I thought were interesting. One of those was war librarians during World War I. Wow. When the contract arrived in my, you know, email inbox a few weeks later, it said, you know, for The Light of Luna Park and for a second book in the same vein, historical fiction about war librarians in World War One. I. I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, that's my next book. Uh, there it is. Yeah, and I mean, I can't complain because if I had had to pick, that is the one I would have picked, which she could probably tell. Right. You know, it's probably the one I talked about with the most excitement, but technically I did not, you know, choose to write about it in that moment, which 
did end up being a good thing because there were times where I felt so stuck. I was like, this story isn't working. It's not working at all. And I would have scrapped it if I had not been legally required not to. (laughs) Right. So the war librarian bit was, you know, very vague. I didn't, it didn't have to be dual timeline. It could be any character. It could be any, you know, plot, but it had to be war librarians. Got it. And then I wanted to add a second timeline. It's always been my favorite. And I also have a really short attention span. So I love having, you know, two halves (laughs) of a book to write instead of one long book. But, you know, in seriousness, I like how you can see when you have two timelines and, you know, you're kind of looking at them together, you can see what has changed, what hasn't changed. And then I did a podcast with Circulating Ideas. And the way that he put it was that when you read a dual timeline, the today sort of becomes the third timeline. Oh, interesting. I know. I really like the way he phrased it where, so I have this 1918, 1976, and now we're here looking at 2022. And it kind of forces you to look what's the same, what's different, where have we not made so much progress? So I love dual timelines, moral of the story. Wanted to put something else in there. Yeah. And it was truly random. I was just like Googling. I was like, well, let's see, I can do another timeline and like you know, this between this set of years. And so I'm like, what happened in 1976? <laughs> Literally, that's what I did. Like, it's embarrassing. <laughs> it's so amazing. I, came, I love it. But, <laughs> thank you. When I came across the Naval Academy, I thought, you know, this is it. It's another woman in like a male dominated space, but it's a completely different era, completely different, you know, feeling, atmosphere, everything. Um, yes. so they're going to be parallels and they're also going to be enough differences that you're not reading the same story twice. Yeah, you really did a nice job with that. And I really appreciated Kathleen's timeline because mm-hmm. I kept thinking I had never considered this. You know, I grew up in Title IX, so that right. was right and early days of that. So I think just the idea that we, that there was such resistance, things like that. And so there were so many pieces in there where exactly what you said, that today is the third timeline because you are constantly exactly comparing and contrasting and i was thinking i never would have considered this if you had said oh the military became co-ed you know the schools did it this time or whatever i would say oh okay great bravo and i would not have even considered that so did you find that the research was were you able to find enough information on that did you do interviews how did you research that one planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I relied really heavily on one book that was like a godsend. It's called First Class, and it's by Sharon Hanley-Disher, who was actually 
in that first class okay. um, yes. in 1976. And she wrote, technically, it's not a memoir, it's, it's fiction, what she wrote, mm-hmm. but it's her two characters are composites of true okay classmates and people that were there so it it was yes people she interviewed and talked to and remembered so everything that while the characters weren't real and the dialogue wasn't real you know everything that happened to them was real and so that's where I got a lot of those like abuses that I would not have been creative or sadistic enough to invent on my own seriously and just these stupid things like the boys carving obscene things in the peanut butter before they passed it to you like are they five yeah Like, I would not have made that up. (laughs) It's really true. There were a few times, so I listened to the audiobook, Mm -hmm. which, by the way, is really good. I would recommend it. And Saskia Marveld, or Marleveld, I always mispronounce her last name, but she (laughs) is incredible. And I know she does a lot for Kate Quinn. And I've heard a lot of her stuff before. And so when I saw that she narrated for a portion of years, I was like, yep, I'm in. She I was, know, I was so excited. I was like, wait, I know this name. I don't oh, know many yeah. audiobook names. But Absolutely. Yes, I feel like, you know, out of the five I know, she's one of them, and she's yeah. just fantastic. So that was really great. But listening to it, I would do the same thing. I listened to some of the things that were happening for Kathleen in that timeline, and I just went, what? Out loud <laughs> sort of thing. Sure. Yeah. yeah, this sounds insane. But it's, I mean, it's such a reminder of how, and those are, you know, examples of, the far end near kind of thing we're talking about, right? Where it's like we've come right. far on some things and then not so much and on not. others. So, right. yeah. I really also liked the details you chose, like the dead letter office, the fact that the story starts there, which also I didn't know was a thing or if I had, I had forgotten. And oh, so that so was a really- There's so much I couldn't put in the book about it. Okay, give me some things that you couldn't put in the book because I was really amazed. My favorite thing was the, it was- they had an exhibit of all the stuff they got in packages. Okay. Oh, and just and, to be clear, this is yeah. mail that didn't make it to its sender yeah. or was returned yeah. to sender. Mm-hmm. So got mail it. that was returned to sender, but they couldn't find the... Yes, yes. Okay, thank you. Couldn't or mail find that the didn't sender. make it where it was supposed to go, usually because the address was incorrect or illegible or in another language or incomplete. I mean, sometimes people would write Tom, Maine. And, you know, they'd have to find, like, ooh, which Tom in the entire Santa state of Maine? Santa Right. Okay. And it's insane if you actually look at what they were able to figure out. They were about able to figure out about 40%, which is incredible considering they didn't have the internet. I was just going to say, yeah, that's like gumshoe investigation yeah. right there. They had city directories. They had newspapers. They had linguistic skills. And that's about it. So they would... I mean, there was one story of, you know, they they knew it was like it was addressed to whatever Main Street. Yeah. But didn't have a state. And so they said, OK, it's a Main Street. It's probably a capital city. And the only main capital in, you know, the Northeast is Philadelphia. That's the only one that has numbers on its Main Street going up past 600 or whatever. Like, I don't know how Amazing. they knew that, how they remembered all these bizarre yes. things. Or there would be people spelling things phonetically, like I-N-S-E-E, Inzee, which was in C, North Carolina. Oh, my goodness. people had just heard, yes. oh, it's going to NC, so they would spell that out. It's bizarre. It's so fascinating. <laughs> wow. And you were saying there was a display? Yeah. So they got packages. They got so many weird things. And they would try to return them, obviously. But if they couldn't, they displayed them partially just for fun. Yeah. And partially because people could come in and look for their lost items. Okay. If they knew they were supposed to receive a package and never did. 
So people would come and, you know, look for their lost snakes or their lost wedding cake or their lost <laughs> suit of armor. <laughs> a suit of armor. They had it, they got it in pieces. It was not mailed in one, but they did have a suit of armor that they were able to assemble. They had cobras that they were definitely dead once they were exhibited. I want to say they were alive when they were sent. Maybe not. Ew. Maybe not. Cobras, lots of jewelry, lots of guns, food, just cash. Incredible. Super bizarre things that they would. And lots of photographs during, I think after, might have been after the Civil War. Were they open yet? I, they, they definitely had people come in and look for photographs of, like, loved ones. Wow. Um, at some point. Gosh. Yeah, I felt like there were so many things. So how does that work for you? So you start researching things. Mm-hmm. And then how do you, do you sit down... Or do you research first and then you come up with the plot based on what you find? Or is it kind of happens at the same time? I'm amazed by historical both. fiction. I do. I do the like main research first. You know, for the Light of Luna Park, I read like two books about the incubator sure, wars. Then sure. started everything else I did throughout. Okay. For the War Librarian, I read first class and read some of the ALA publications, the American Library Association publications about the Library War Service. And then everything else just kind of as I went. Mm-hmm. In terms of the, like, what was the question exactly? <laughs> in terms of how you how you write, like, in the order of it. So it sounds like you're answering it. So you start with sort of a base knowledge, and then do you yeah. now do you plot? Are you a are you a plotter? I don't like to. For the War okay. Librarian, I had to turn in that outline. Like I oh, said, that's right. it yes, changed yes. a lot. Okay, it changed a lot, but it gave me. It, it was helpful because it kept me from. My first idea made no sense. And once I wrote the outline, my agent was like, oh, it's really good. Maybe we can just tweak it a little bit. And it was a completely separate story by the time we tweaked uh, it. So it ended up being a good thing. But, but for the Light of Luna Park, I did not. And even the outline that I did, it, did end up with before the War Librarian changed a okay. lot. It's like the beginning and the ending and then everything in between just kind of makes itself up as it goes along. I'm amazed by that. I have only written a memoir and I have started dabbling in fiction and I'm like, you know, just crazy with power. I'm like, I can make these people do anything. This is amazing. See, that's why historical fiction helps me because it has to kind of pull me back. I'm like, no, they couldn't do that. They couldn't do that. This didn't happen. So it gives me sort of a framework. Otherwise, I would just stare at the blank page and think there are too many possibilities. I don't know what to do. Mm. Okay. So you like to have those, those guardrails for what you're going to write about. Okay. Well, that makes sense because it is, I mean, a blinking cursor is a terrifying sight, (laughs) especially when you're setting out to write an entire book, right? I mean, I know it happens scene by scene. Yeah, that's incredible. You're right too about the dual timeline, making things a little bit easier in that way too, because you really do chunk, you know, you're writing two books, basically two baby books, and then you have them crossing over. Well, exactly. I do write them separately. You do? Um, okay. Do you write so one like, and then the other? Yes. Oh. So for that first manuscript, I didn't. The one that was never <laughs> picked okay. up. I did chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. You know, I alternated. Yeah. It was more fun to write that way, I think. But it kept both characters from having like a full arc or as high of stakes, which is the feedback I got. They would say they liked one timeline. And the other didn't have the same like driving force behind it. Yes. So that's actually why I forced myself to write The Light of Luna Park. I wrote Althea's story first and then Stella's for the War Library. And I wrote about Emmeline and then about Kathleen. It makes it a lot harder on the tail end because you have to try to mesh them together in a way that 
make sense. It doesn't reveal anything that you don't want to be revealed. Yes. But it, it, it makes for a stronger story for me. I know a lot of authors do it the other way, you know, switch back and forth. I wish I could do that, but I cannot. <laughs> well, that's good to hear, though, that that's even a possibility because that never mm-hmm. that never would have occurred to me before. I would have I think I would have started alternating with yeah. the way that you're saying does make sense, especially if you're really trying to develop two characters, which right. you are, right? Interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm, I'm going to consider that. I don't know that I have the, I don't know if I could do historical fiction. I always wonder when I <laughs> read it because it's so, it feels like, you know, you're writing the fiction book, but then you're squeezing it into this new framework because it has to right. work historically. And then just the facts. I think I would tend to want to include every fact because I would want to tell people all the cool stuff I'd learned. But see, that's where the editor comes in. If you stick everything in there, they can, you know, they can help you trim it down because sometimes I do. They come in and they say, okay, this is enough. Yes. I mean, like at the better office, I had a lot more of that in there and they were like, these are really interesting details, but the entire first half of the story is her just like chilling in the dead letter office. Like there's just nothing (laughs) happening. Isn't that incredible? I find that so fascinating. And I can see it a little bit in other people's writing, I think, now that I'm starting to. But the way that editors can look at something and say, yeah, this is great. And I love it when they say, like, this is really good writing and it doesn't belong here at all. Right. Like, I I don't know if I ever feel confident enough about that to tell someone, like, you have to move this, cut this. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, no, I agree with you. That would be really hard, especially too. I think if you start off on this side, I think if I started off editing, it would be a lot easier. But right. when you start off writing, you know, you know, you're like, please don't yeah. hurt my babies. <laughs> like these I are know. my. And they're always right. They they have always been right, at least on the big things. But sometimes, because sometimes I'm initially resistant. Yeah. You know, and they say, try it, and yeah. then if you still don't like it, and I try it, I'm like, dang it, they were right. <laughs> <laughs> I hate being wrong. It's so annoying. Yeah. What are you working on now? Are you writing right now? Yes, I'm working on another dual timeline historical fiction, but then I'm also working on a middle grades sort of historical fiction with some magic interwoven in piece as well. <laughs> oh, cool. I love middle grade because I'm an yes, elementary librarian, obviously. Yes, <laughs> you know? yes. I love, oh, I just, and it's such a good space too. Like there's so much freedom to write there and it's so plot driven. I, I'm a fan. Well, gosh, it sounds like you are pretty lazy, Addison. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to say that fully right yet, but I don't know what you're doing with all your time, but you might want to think about doing some other stuff. Like I said, the subway commute helps. Oh yes. I'm sure that's all it is. (laughs) All we need is a subway commute and then I can just churn out some books. Well, that And that is pretty impressive. Have you enjoyed the publication process? I mean, it's clear you enjoy the writing. Have you enjoyed the author part of it? Yeah, it's been exciting. It's, like you said, the actual publication takes forever. Yes. I'm not, like I said, I'm not patient. My attention span is zero. So (laughs) that's, I'm always like, any news, any news, any news? Is it ready? Is it ready? What's the cover (laughs) going to look like? Have we gotten any emails? Yes. But you know, at the same time, like paralyzingly afraid of being annoying. So not actually ever asking them anything. Oh yeah. That sounds, yeah. I I can relate to that. I'm actually, (laughs) I'm going to make the sign that the kids make. I have a connection. I'll tap my brain because I'm going to show you, not tell you, not shout out at you. (laughs) Yes. So, you know, but it's been really exciting and it's just crazy walking into a bookstore. I'm like, Oh, 
I wrote that. So you know, sometimes silly. it's in a place I don't expect. There's a tenement museum here in New York um, in the Lower East Side. It's amazing. It's, you yeah. know, about like stories. And I was just browsing their gift shop and I was like, wait a second, that's the light of Luna Park. And I like ran up to the desk and I was so, you know, I sound very professional at a bookstore. I know what to say, you know, can I yeah. sign this? And, but I was just so shocked to find it. I was like, this is mine. I wrote it. And they were like, <laughs> what? I'm like, I didn't just pull out of my purse. Like it was on the shelf. <laughs> <laughs> your, your spiel wasn't as prepared for that no, situation. I did not know how to deal with a gift <laughs> shop versus a bookstore, but this is mine. <laughs> yeah, this is mine. I brought it from home. <laughs> I, I, oh gosh, I have so many of those moments that happen, and you walk away, <laughs> right. and you're like, "Gosh, I, I think I could have done that a little bit better." Yeah, oh well, this is why I write words down instead of. You know, That's right, letting. It, well, I will say that I also bought. I mean, I was listening to it on audio, but I also bought a copy of your book, and I got it at Parnassus when I was oh, visiting yeah. Nashville. What so, were you in Nashville for? Just for the weekend with some friends. And so, of oh. course, I made everyone go with me to Parnassus. Yeah, and I will say, they, it's oh, it's so fantastic. And I will say they have a very nice seating area in the center that my husband was mm-hmm. quite happy about because he <laughs> didn't want to look at books. He is yeah, Especially uninterested. for as long as you wanted to look at books. Correct. I know. It's, I could stay in bookstores all day. I mean, yep. obviously, it's not like a surprise to anyone. But... <laughs> I, yeah, I really was happy to pick yours up there and even happier knowing that Nashville was your former stomping grounds. Yes, just until about two months ago. Oh, wow. And do you like New York? Oh, yeah, we're loving it. My husband's doing med school at Cornell. So, okay. you know, that's how Gosh. we ended up here. It's been great. So you two are a pair of underachievers. <laughs> great. <laughs> so glad to know there are young people like you out there. Just... <laughs> Getting it done more than Netflix. Okay. Well, so to wrap this up, do you have a question for me? Yes. Since the war librarian obviously deals a lot with banned books, you know, books that the the soldiers are not allowed to read. I was wondering if as an elementary school librarian, you encounter any, you know, book challenges from parents or teachers or administration or whether you've been lucky enough to avoid that. It's a good question. And I have been lucky enough to avoid it. We do have an established challenge procedure but we were just talking about this the other day at my library meeting about graphic novels, because mm-hmm. that's kind of an interesting place right now where we're avoiding challenges. However, they aren't challenges. However, there's because the elementary space, we're sort of operating in local parentis. So we're, you know, trying to make sure that they're not getting books that aren't right for them. The issue is right now, and I'm sure you would see this with English language learners, graphic novels novels seem like a very good idea for kids who are really struggling with the text because the pictures support it. But so much of the content that's in these graphic novels is actually way more advanced than they should be getting. And Mm -hmm. so it's kind of an interesting mix. So we don't have, luckily we haven't had many challenges, but I think it's a reminder that we are always trying to think about what's best for them. Mm -hmm. And what makes the most sense and sets them up. But yeah, luckily we haven't had a ton because it is so discouraging to me because I really am an advocate for the idea that everything is a jumping off point for conversation. So, you know, and as a parent, read what your kids bring home, like, and having that opportunity together. But it can be, yeah, it can Mm -hmm. get really, it can get really messy. And we live in California, so thankfully there aren't, a lot of 
issues okay. with certain yeah, tax, related. right? Yeah, it's not the this state, spot. but yeah. I know that Tennessee right now is huge oh, yeah. with that. Tennessee's in the middle of everything. Yes, yeah. it really is. And, and it I does, grew up uh, in Florida, too, so it really just... <laughs> that's right. Your sugar ants to then Tennessee where you found some different things. Yeah, yeah it is. Did you, find, did you find any of that in your school before you left? Not particularly because okay. the kids weren't largely reading independently what with not speaking the language and then COVID happening right. and yes. you know so there was not a lot of a lot of them picking out their own books to be honest yeah but but in the neighboring district there were some big issues with the books that the curriculum was including like the picture book about Ruby Bridges that she co-authored oh yes okay they were horrified that students you know dare read about a little girl going to school I mean it was it was a mess. There was a teacher who tried to read it despite parent objection. It was in the you know required curriculum. Yeah. She got suspended. It was so that was just the neighboring district. Yeah. What do you is there anything you wish that people knew about education right now? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I know that's kind of a big question to end with. I just I really appreciate teachers and yeah. I mean is there something that you would share? I think we blame the kids for everything. Mm. I mean, we say they're these kids with special needs, they're kids with behavior problems, they're kids who don't speak English, but none of those things are problems in and of themselves. It's the fact right. that we're not equipped to deal with those things because we're not given the tools to deal with those things. And so many teachers are leaving education largely not because of the kids, but because of the other adults, because of the yes. administration, the people who haven't been in a school building in 30 years. Yes. And just specifically with my eels. I mean, they are brilliant. They are the smartest little kiddos. Yeah. They might not speak English. You might not be able to tell they're the smartest, but they're so much smarter than I was at that age. They're so much more mature. They're multilingual. You know, I threw a tantrum if I didn't get what I wanted for dinner. Right. And they're doing all these incredible things. Yes. You know, supporting their whole family in a way. Yes. The mantle of responsibility that they wear. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. Thank you for sharing that. I think that that's a really good yeah, point. Yeah, and a reminder that there's so much there that we just forget in the conversation. So you're right. Yeah. And I couldn't and agree more. Needing support is, and not support in, I mean, of course, they love Starbucks gift cards. Give your teachers lots of money and <laughs> gift right. cards and Target and whatever, but also just the the support for saying you need the tools to do your job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, Addison, this was a joy. I really enjoyed talking to you, even though you're a slacker. This was really fun. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for the time. And I can't wait for people to keep reading War Librarian. We'll keep an eye out for your next project. And I'm going to go back and read really? The Light of Luna Park because that sounds fascinating as well. Yay. I can't wait to read it. <laughs> Thanks so so much much. for the time today, friend. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Ask a Librarian. As always, it's my joy to share and learn with you. You can follow me on Instagram at juliewritesWords, or you can go to my website, juliewritesWords.com. There you'll find the show notes, including all the books mentioned in the episode. See you in the stacks next week. And until then, friends, never go anywhere without a book. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.